morning, Carville. I guess it's not really more, it's more like mid-morning, uh, but so happy to be here with you today. If we have not had a chance to meet, my name is Drew McCullough. I am one of the pastors here at High Point Church. And uh, if you didn't know, your campus pastor, Parker Richardson, he is not here today. Uh, the man got married yesterday. All right. So yeah, give it up. I heard a woo over here. And uh, whoever it was, you've probably known that Parker and Elizabeth were been dating way too long. So now they're married. And uh, shout out to them, uh, because I'm sure on their honeymoon, they're going to listen to this podcast, because that's what people do on their honeymoon. Um, so uh, we today, I'm excited to be back with you today. And we're starting a new series called Names of God. So if you have your Bible, go ahead, open it up to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, and while you're doing that... Uh, Parker and I talked uh, a few days ago about uh, something since he wasn't going to be here. He wanted to talk, me to talk about something uh, while you're turning there. This is a perfect opportunity. Um, as most of you know, I know that in this service, we have a lot of people who serve first service. Uh, so praise the Lord for second service. Am I right? Uh, but during first service, we have Clubhouse and Kids City available for High Point Kids. Um, and during this service, though, uh, we don't. And uh, we want to. But uh, Neil and Olivia are our two uh, directors here over kids ministry. Uh, they don't have enough volunteers to have a second service. Uh, so the elders and Parker, uh, our team, Neil, Olivia, we want a second service for High Point Kids. We want to sit there, disciple, partner with you, disciple your kids, bring them up in the word along with you as we talked about family discipleship. We wanna teach them the good news of Jesus. Uh, but if you are not serving in kids ministry, we, we would love if you would consider what that would look like for you and your family. Uh, and I, you can come up to me as a family pastor. I'd love to cast that vision for you. Neil and Olivia, they are somewhere in this building. Uh, you can grab them, uh, grab someone in Next Steps. We would love to talk to you about what that looks like. And they're on the back of every seat in here, uh, there is a little card that you can fill out and just say, I'm interested in serving, or you make and say, I can just, I'm just, I'm just curious. Uh, there's honestly, there's a growth track coming up December 5th. It's at one of the elders' houses, so it's gonna be really an awesome time if you haven't been to growth track. Uh, but we would love for you to consider what that looks like serving in kids' ministry. Uh, so enough of that. Uh, before we jump in, uh, let me pray for us. God Almighty, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And uh, God, I pray for High Point Carterville today. God, I pray um, as sinners, each one of us, uh, we forget your goodness, we forget your holiness. God, I pray that you humble each one of us today. Pray that you bring each one of our hearts to a deeper worship in who you are. God, I pray that as my mouth opens, it not be my words that are heard, but be your word. And Holy Spirit, as my mouth opens, I pray that not me do any work, but you do all the work. God, I pray that I decrease and you increase over the next few minutes, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Now, as we talk about names of God, uh, you might be thinking, that sounds like a fun series. Names of God, right? We just finished family discipleship. Everybody has a family. You got to, you know, we got to talk about some different people in here that are doing, walking through family discipleship. It's engaging. Names of God, right? 
I literally had someone last week say, I gotta be honest, I'm not really excited about this whole Names of God series. Is that bad? <laughs> I won't tell you who that was. Um, but I understand the comment, right? It's, it just doesn't sound like one of those series you're just like, yeah, I'm excited about that one. But let's walk through as we talk about this, why in the world are we gonna spend six weeks, if you include Christmas Eve, which is gonna be in this series, seven sermons about the names of God? Why in the world are we doing that? Well, let's talk about what a name is, the importance of a name. A name is not just something that you call somebody, right? It's not just a title given. Names give meaning. They give invitation to personal relationship. Think about it, if we didn't have names, there wouldn't be much relationship, right? Y'all would know me as Beardy. Please don't call me Beardy. <laughs> Thank you. But it's, it, what does that do if you just sit there, you don't know me as Drew, you know me as Guy, right? You, you all have experienced this, I promise you. When you see that person and you're like, oh, I forgot their name. What's up, man? Right? It just diminishes a little bit. When you, when, you, when you say, what's up, Mr. Lloyd? I know you. Names give meaning. They give purpose. They give us insight, character. And do we have any uh, musical fans in here? Theater, anybody? I like participation, so if you do, don't just be like, ah, raise my hand later. No, just feel free to raise your hand. Do you have any theater? Thank you. Thank you, April, just extending her hand real far. Uh, I love musicals, and uh, one of my favorite musicals is Les Mis. It's a beautiful story, uh, Les Mis. And one of the, in that story, uh, one of the main characters, Jean Valjean, and at the very beginning of the story, he gets arrested. He has to spend time serving a sentence in manual labor as a prisoner. And what do they do to him as a prisoner? They take away his name. He is not Jean Valjean. They don't call him Johnny. They call him 24601. He has a number. He has a title. Why? It completely dehumanizes him. All the prisoners, they just have numbers. They don't have names. Or a real life example about the Holocaust. What did the Germans do? What did the Nazis do? They stripped away the names, they gave them numbers. Why? It dehumanizes. Names give meaning, right? Individuality. And actually in Les Mis, Towards the end, Jean Valjean, he's singing a song, of course, because that's how musicals are. But he goes into it and he says, I'm 24601, but I am Jean Valjean. He is reclaiming his humanity, right? Because he's not just a number. He is a name. He is a person. It gives him identity. But it's not just meaning and personal. Names also reveal the uniqueness of people, the essence of who they are. It helps you understand their story, their purpose, their character. A couple weeks ago, uh, during the family series, uh, I introduced you to my family, showed you a picture of them, um, and I'm not gonna do that um, today. 
Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm going to because they're the cutest thing you've ever seen. Look at that. I'll just leave that up there for a second. Uh, that's my wife, Brittany, and my daughter, Colby Grace. And I promise this is probably the last time I'll show you their picture. Uh, I don't want to be that guy, okay? Oh, he's coming. We're going to see his family. Um, but I, I show you that picture for a purpose. Because a few weeks ago, I told you a little bit about our story that my wife and I, uh, we met in college. We've been married for almost nine years. And uh, throughout our marriage, we went through about a five-year journey of infertility. And we didn't know uh, why we couldn't have kids, but we went through tests and procedures. Doctors had no idea. They couldn't explain it to us. Praise God that he knew. But we had no idea. And so we had to lean on our community. We had to lean on one another. And of course, we had to lean on the Lord, running to him every day. It was hard. And then we ended up going through this procedure called an embryo adoption. And we didn't know if it was gonna work. Doctors didn't know if it was gonna work. But praise God that in his goodness, it worked. He knows. It worked. And a few months later, our baby girl was born, Colby Grace Tyler McCullough. Now here's why I tell you that. My wife and I, when we were engaged, we knew where this was going. Obviously, when you're engaged, you know you're gonna get married, right? And we said, hey, uh, when we get married and we have kids, prayerfully we have kids, we need, we, need a, we need a C name. I'm Andrew Tyler McCullough. My wife is Brittany, her maiden name Tyler. So she's Brittany Tyler McCullough. We like, we need to do this ABC thing, okay? So we said, we need a, a C name that we love, gender neutral, so that we, we'll just change the spelling based on the gender. So we said, we really like Colby. Colby Tyler McCullough. But then we went through a five-year journey of infertility. And so a few months after it took and we found out that great news, Brittany and I sat down and had a conversation and said, you know what? We don't just want it to be Colby Tyler McCullough. We want to add grace in there. Why? Because that word grace, that name, helps you understand who she is. It is her unique story. Because we wanted to remember every time we said her name, whether we're grounding her or encouraging her. We don't ground her yet. She's only one. Every time that when we eventually show her how to write her name, it helps us be able to tell her her unique story, that she is an undeserved gift from God. She is a gift of God's grace. So she is now Colby Grace Tyler McCullough. It gives you insight into who she is. That's what names do. Your name may not be like that. Yours might be a family name that was passed down from generations, like Tyler is in hers. It's Brittany's family name. Honestly, you might be sitting here and you're like, I can't identify like that because your name is like mine. My parents named me Andrew because they wanted to call me Drew. Name me Drew, I don't know. Weird, but that's my name. It's my unique story, right? It gives me a little, ins- it gives you a little insight into who I am. It is not new to us, it's in the Bible too. The name Adam, guess what it means? From the ground. Guess why? What did God do? He took the dust from the ground and formed Adam. Eve means living because she is the mother of all living things. 
Abraham, if you remember his original name was Abram, God uh, made a covenant with him, renamed him Abraham, because what does it mean? It means the father of a great multitude. Isaac means laughter because his mother, Sarah, in their old age, when her and Abraham, when God said, you'll have a child, what did she do? She laughed. They named him laughter. Jacob, Isaac's son, means trickster, heel grabber. Because what did he do? He went on to try to, he didn't try, he succeeded in deceiving his brother Esau out of his blessing. It's even Satan. Means accuser. He's a father of lies sitting there pointing at you, accusing you in your sin. Peter, his name was Cephas. Jesus renamed him Peter. What does it mean? Rock, upon this rock, I will build my church. And on and on and on and on and on. Names give meaning, they give understanding. And so back to the original question, why in the world are we spending so long talking about the names of God? It's because the names of God personalize him. He is not just this title. He is not just this 24601. He is a personal name, many personal names. And they're names that are given to help us understand who he is, his purpose, his character. Here's what Wayne Grudem says about the names of God. He says, the many names of God in the scripture provide additional revelation of his character. These are not mere titles assigned by people, but for the most part, his own descriptions about himself. As such, they reveal aspects of his character. All over scripture, he's known by a whole bunch of names and each one of them uniquely reveal who he is to us. And like Wayne said, it's God giving himself these names so that we may understand. And there's about almost a thousand names that are used for God in scripture. But there's one name that kind of is unique and stands apart, which is why we're going to Exodus chapter three today. Because Exodus in Hebrew actually means names. So the book of Exodus is a book of names because it actually starts with naming all the tribes of Israel in chapter one. But more importantly, it's the first time where God gives his personal name to his people and says, this is who I am. And it's the name of Yahweh. So before we jump in, let me set the stage here. For hundreds of years, the people of Israel, they lived in the land of Egypt. They were brought there by a, uh, through a famine, long story short, in Genesis, you can read about it, that uh, Joseph, one of Israel's sons, Joseph was second in command in Egypt. So through this famine, family reunited in the land of Egypt, right? But what happened? As people do, Joseph died, Pharaoh died, new Pharaoh, the people of Israel, guess what they did? They multiplied and there's a whole bunch of them. So the new Pharaoh, not caring who Joseph is, he is threatened by this group of people. So out of fear, he enslaves them. And that's where they spent hundreds and hundreds of years being mistreated and in slavery by the Egyptians. But God had a plan to save them and rescue them. And we see in Exodus chapter two, a baby boy, his name was, anybody wanna guess? Moses, thank you. You've been paying attention. 
Moses was born. And Moses actually means to draw out, to pull out. Talk about a name of a, of a baby. Why is he called that? Why is that his name? Because uh, Pharaoh, so threatened, made a decree, kill all the Israelite babies. So his mother put him in a basket, put him in the Nile River, sent him downstream, because that was the only hope. But then Pharaoh's daughter is the one who found him. And what did she do? She drew him out. She pulled him out of the Nile River, raised him as her own in the riches of Pharaoh's palace. Talk about that story. And then strangely enough, uh, uh, Moses' birth mother actually gets to kind of nanny and tutor him and raise him, help raise him. And so he grows up knowing who he is. And so as an adult, he's walking through Egypt. He sees an Israelite being mistreated by an Egyptian. He steps in, identifying with his people, steps in, ends up killing the Egyptian. So he ran away. He ran from Egypt. And he ended up in the land of Midian, met this woman, married her, started working for her father, spent 40 years there in Midian. And that's where we pick up in Exodus chapter three. Let's look at the first few verses. You can follow along on the screen behind me if you choose. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the uh, the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb, if you have never heard of that mountain, it's also known as Sinai, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. It's the same mountain. Verse two, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame with fire of fire within a bush. And Moses looked and he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. So there's a few things here. First, it says the angel of the Lord appeared. Now that term, angel of the Lord, it's referenced several different times in the Old Testament. But it is not, when you see it, it it seems like this angel of the Lord is unique from all the other angels, right? Right? from Gabriel and all these other angels that are mentioned that are given names. This one is not just an angel or a messenger, always identified as the angel of the Lord. So he's unique. And every single time that the angel of the Lord, this character appears, he identifies himself with God and speaks as God. It's interesting. He is unique. He, uh, he identifies with God, speaks as God. And there's only, there's, if you, you know, know the scripture, there's, there's one person who also has those unique characteristics and it's the person of Jesus Christ. Identifies with God, speaks as God. This, the angel of the Lord is known as a Christophany. It's a, uh, it's a pre-incarnate Christ Jesus, God in human form. It's called a Christophany. So when we see the angel of the Lord, it's someone identifying with God, unique, speaking as God, it's a Christoph- Christophany. So then he says, the angel of the Lord 
pre-incarnate Christ appeared to Moses in a flame of fire within a bush. And that's the second thing I wanna point out. We know this as a burning bush, right? If you've ever heard this story before. The word bush, uh, in, in English, we have a word for like everything, right? We have a word for bush and tree and grass and this and that and limb and log. In Hebrew, they have a general word for those kinds of plants. And so this, knowing the, the terrain, this is not like a shrub that you would have in your flower bed that you have to trim every spring. This would be more of a bramble, which is more of a tree, like a small thorny tree. That's what this bush is. So when you read bush, think, think more of a bramble as a thorny tree. So Moses, he says, look at this remarkable sight. What was remarkable about this? Moses was not blown away by fire. Moses has seen fire before. Back in the day, for the young ones in the room, you use fire to cook things, right, and light. There weren't switches you turn on. People, he knew what fire was. And like us, he knows how fire works, right? The natural order of fire. What does it take? It takes a spark and it takes fuel, oxygen and something flammable. And what happens with fire? It burns, it burns, it burns until the fuel runs up and then what happens? It ain't burning no more gone. So when Moses says, look at this remarkable sight, he's not blown away by the fire. Honestly, he's not blown away that there's a tree on fire. He's in the middle of the wilderness, middle of the desert. That's not shocking. He's blown away because this fire is not dying out. He's blown away because this tree, though on fire, is not being destroyed. It's remarkable. It's, it's not natural. It's supernatural. And as we know, as Moses comes to find out, it's because it's a sign from God. And that's where we see in the next few verses. Verse four, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come any closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Moses, here's what he did. He hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So again, notice, angel of the Lord, now it's just the Lord. Now it's God speaking, interchangeable. But God calls out to Moses, but then warns him, don't come any closer, you're standing on holy ground. Now this is interesting, the interesting crazy thing about the holiness of the glory of God. We as sinners, Moses as a sinner, that's our response. It's, it's taking off the shoes, hiding the face, unholiness in the midst of holiness. I mentioned this first service. Uh, I listened to a uh, sermon uh, by Tim Keller and he was actually talking about uh, this passage and he said, uh, very different, but he used the analogy, no matter how pretty you think you are, when you're in the presence of someone who is very pretty, prettier than you, what do you do? You suddenly are a little, oh goodness, right? You hide. 
to an infinite degree, that's what Moses was experiencing. He hides himself because he's ashamed. It's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They sinned, they hear God walking through the garden, calling him out, calling out to him. What were they doing? They were hiding. Later in Exodus, when they come back to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the very glory of God, the presence of God comes down on the mountain. What does God tell the people? Don't even touch the mountain because you will die in your unholiness because I am holy. It's what Isaiah, when he sees a, he sees a vision of the presence of God. Look at what he says in Isaiah chapter six. This is what Moses was experiencing. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. In the presence of holiness, unholiness, we cower. I am unclean, I am undone, I am nothing. It was obvious this was no ordinary bush on fire. One, it was talking. Newsflash, that's not normal. If you've experienced that one, let's talk afterwards, okay? But two, it was not being consumed. Because this was not just an ordinary bush on fire, this was the very manifestation of God himself. Then we keep reading. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people, mark that word observed, and have heard, mark that word heard, heard them crying out because of their oppressors. And I know, mark that word know, about their sufferings. And I have come down to rescue them. Mark that phrase, I have come down. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Hethites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. So because the Israelites cry for help has come to me, I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Let's look back at the beautiful words that I just said to Mark and underline. He says, I have seen the misery. I have heard the cries. I know their sufferings. And guess what? I have come down. I have come down to rescue them. I have come down to intercede. I've come down to deliver them from bondage to freedom, from death to life, from misery to joy. I have come down. That's personal. That's intimate. I have come down. And he tells Moses, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna rescue my people through you. Moses responds like most of us probably would respond. Huh? What? Me? How? Why? Are you crazy? He, he literally, like over the next few chapters, he argues with God. God gives him an answer. 
Moses comes up with another question, but are you sure? And God's simple response, it, it, Moses says, but who am I that you're gonna send me and use me? And, and God basically ignores him and says, I'm gonna go with you. It's very reminiscent of the passage we talked about all throughout the last series, the Great Commission. When he sends out the disciples, when Jesus sends out the disciples, what is, what's the source of the power that he sends out with? He says, I have all the authority in heaven and on earth, therefore you go and make disciples. For what? I will be with you. The power and the strength of God. And one of my favorite verses in chapter four, God, again, going back and forth with Moses, Moses again says, are you sure? In chapter four, verse 12, God says, go I will be with you always. I will be with you and I will teach you what to say. I will be with you. I'll put words in your mouth. Don't worry about it. And that's how he answers here. But then we get to the last few verses and Moses says, okay, 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 you're going with me, but who are you? What is your name? Here's how God responds. Verse 13, then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me, has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replies to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I'm gonna be remembered in every generation. Now, up to this point in history, God was simply known as Elohim, which is a title given for the creator being who created everything. He was just Elohim. It, it was a title that told you uh, what he does, not who he is. It tells you about him, but doesn't tell you who he is. It wasn't personal. It was a title. So Moses, this is the first time anyone in history says, well, who are you? What's your name? What's that name that describes you? And God, he responds with, I am who I am, which in Hebrew is Echia Asher Echia. And then again, he says, tell them Echia, I am, has sent you. And that word Echia in Hebrew, it's, it's interesting because it's actually just a verb. So when, when God says, tell them Echia has sent you, that verb means to be. Where a noun should be, God gives a verb. And it's interesting. And then in, in verse 15, he says, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, all caps Lord, when you see that, you know the name in Hebrew is Yahweh. And that name Yahweh, it's almost actually not translatable because of how they spell it. It's four consonants, but we pronounce it Yahweh. It's a, it's, a, it's a name that is derived from the word Echia. It's a personal name given 
to a verb of who he is. He gives himself that name. And when he gives himself, he says, I am Yahweh, Echia. He is giving us this idea that he is. He is. He absolutely is. I am. I'm not just another being. I am being. Being in itself. I am the one who is. And then in that same sentence, God makes a connection with Moses. Moses knew Elohim. He knew the the God of the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew Elohim. And God is saying, I'm not just Elohim, but I am. He was showing that the creator God is not just an indefinable force, but he is a personal, noble God. So it's interesting that the first time God identifies himself, says, this is my name, he says, Ehyeh, Yahweh. Which actually, uh, over time, the Hebrew people, they had such reverence for God, they stopped even saying Yahweh. And to reference God, they started putting some other consonants in there. That's where we actually get the word Jehovah, Yehovah. It became, it came from, derived from Yahweh, same name. And what's interesting is, is, is Moses uh, didn't say, you know what? I'm gonna call you Yahweh, right? That's what we do with, with puppies when we bring them home. God gave himself this name. God appeared and God said, I am Yahweh. So what does this name Yahweh that God gives himself reveal about who he is? There's five things. Yahweh means that God is eternal. God is eternal. Now, this is something that if you grew up or over the past few years, weeks, read scripture, grew up in the body of Christ, this is something that you've heard before. It's probably something you said. God's eternal, of course. He's the creator. But I think a lot of times we forget how incredibly mind-blowing that reality is. Everything that you and I know has a start and a finish. Doesn't matter how old you are, there was a time where you weren't here, right? It doesn't make sense to us. We cannot compute that. It is unfathomable. But when he says, I am, he is, I am the one who is, he is saying, there eternity past, eternity future, I am. I am the one who is. There was never a point in time where I just appeared. There was never be a point in time where I will not be because why? I am. And the second thing, Yahweh means that God is constant. He's not just eternal, but he is completely unchanging. Everything that, that he was, he is. Everything he will be, he is. Completely unchanging. Right? He's not progressing towards something. He's not even diminishing. Everything he ever will be, he is right now. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
which again, does not make sense to us. And for hundreds of years, scientists have been saying, well, we evolve, we change. Of course, everything changes. God says, I am unchanging. Yahweh also means that God is independent. Since he always has been, he was never dependent on anything bringing him into existence. And because he was never dependent on anything to be and come into existence, he's not dependent on anything to keep him in existence. Why? Because he is. He is completely independent, self-sufficient, self-reliant, self-existing, completely sustained by himself. Yahweh means that God is absolute. He is the standard of truth and wisdom and goodness and beauty. God is, he is. There's no, there is no time in history where God has something come up and he says, hold on, let me go Google it. You and I have those daily. I literally had one in between services. I was talking to the steels outside and I said, I can't remember that word, hold on. And I go Google it. But he is absolute. There is no book that he goes to that says, well, hold on, let me go figure out what the wisest thing, let me go figure out what, 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 what right and wrong is here. Why? Because he is, he is absolute. There are no parameters on God outside of his own will. Why? Because he is. He is absolute. Which our culture, by the way, will tell you that the word absolute doesn't exist because it's just up to the interpreter. But as soon as something terrible in this world happens, some injustice, some terrible thing, we can all agree and our hearts tell us that's evil, that's terrible. What does that tell us? There is an absolute morality. There is an absolute good. Why? Because he is the standard. And here's the last one. Yahweh means that God is ultimate. Since God is completely independent, everything that is not God is completely dependent on God. He is ultimate. Since he is absolute and the standard, guess what? Everything else submits because he is. Since he is the eternal creator, everything that exists comes secondary to him. Nothing compares. You can think of the most interesting galaxy that the Hubble telescope will ever discover. The most complex atom or whatever smaller than an atom, I don't know. Nothing compares, pales in comparison. Why? Because he is, he is ultimate. And because he is ultimate, nothing is worth more. Nothing is more valuable. Here's how John Piper put it. He is the greatest. He is the most beautiful. He is the most glorious. He is the most valuable. He is the most important person and being in existence. 
No matter how great money is, how great the promotion is, no matter how, how awesome your child is or how great your marriage is, no matter how beautiful the Grand Canyon is, he is ultimate. He deserves more admiration, more worship, more awe, more glory than any of it. Nothing compares. Why? Because he is. See, when he says that word Yahweh, when he says, Ehyeh asher Ehyeh, what he's saying is, I am. I am, I'm it. I'm eternal, I'm unchanging and constant. I'm independent, I'm absolute, I'm ultimate. I am. And it seems like such a small thing, especially when we talk about all these different names of God, the name Yahweh. But the name Yahweh is more base, it's the most basic, most foundational, but at the same time, most mind blowing and life altering fact that's ever existed that God is. It is more life altering to our American government. It is most life-altering thing that exists in your marriage, the most life-altering fact that exists at High Point Cargerville, the most life-altering fact that exists in your child's life is the fact that God is. The eternal God is. So if we take what we understand about Ehyeh and Yahweh back to the story of Exodus, here's what's truly incredible. The eternally constant God who is absolute and ultimate and dependent on nothing, guess what? He appeared. He observed the misery. He heard their cry, knew their suffering. He cared for them. And what was that phrase? I have come down. The eternal one has come down. The unchanging one who's not dependent on you and me. He's not dependent on the Israelites. He has come down. Infinite greatness and personal intimacy are experienced in one name of Yahweh. Infinite greatness, but personal intimacy found in that one name. He's conveying his infinite worth, but his ultimate care and willingness to act on behalf of his people. See, there's a bunch of religions in this world and people who it's a religion, but they don't even say it's a religion. And they, they will admit that something is holding this together, that something cre started this whole thing. There's a, there's a force going on. Some say it's Allah, Buddha. Some say it's just Mother Nature. It's Mother Earth. Some just say it's science. It's just matter. That's how it works. But God, here in Exodus chapter three, in the, in the name Yahweh, he's, he's telling us, yes, God is real, but he is also a personal God who can be known. 
Over and over again in scripture, Yahweh is the personal name used most often when God chooses to reveal himself to his people and when he comes to redeem and save and rescue his people. Reveal and redeem. You see it, Yahweh is the name that God uses to split the Red Sea. It's the name of Yahweh. Yahweh is a name used when God appeared on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Yahweh is the name used, uh, he's the one who came in a, in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud to guide the Israelites in the wilderness. Yahweh, it's the name used for the one who provided the manna. Yahweh is the name used when Joshua was commissioned to go into the promised land, splitting the Jordan River. It's the name most used by the psalmist and the prophets. And you know what? Ultimately, finally, it's the name that Jesus Christ himself most identifies with and reveals himself as, is I am. In the book of John, if you've read through John or heard a study of John, you know that there's seven statements that Jesus makes where he's revealing himself as God. These different I am, of course, it's written in Greek, so it's not the same words, but it's ego ami, is what he says. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the sheep gate. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And then beyond that, chapter eight of John, he says, therefore I told you that you will die in your sins for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That word he, that was added for the English translation because I am doesn't make English sense. It's not grammatical, grammatically correct. So we added he to make sense of the sentence, but Jesus, he actually says, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Further down to chapter eight, Jesus says, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, guess what? I am. And then in John chapter 13, you probably heard the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. He was at the place of honor. He gets up, puts his cloak around his waist, gets on the floor, takes off their gross sandals and washes their gross feet, puts his cloak back on, sits at the head of the table. And he says, do you, do you realize what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord and you're right because therefore I am. And then when Jesus is arrested and he's taken before the Sanhedrin, put on trial and they're mocking him and they're lying about him. Jesus doesn't say a word. He's a sacrificial lamb. He knows what he came to do. They're accusing him of all this stuff. He doesn't say a word until they say, are you the Messiah? What's his response? All he says, I am. Over and over again, Jesus reveals himself as the great I am, identifying with that name of Yahweh but it's not just what he says, it's his actual name. Here's what's interesting. Who, who gave Jesus his name? It's God, right? What did the angels say to Mary and Joseph? And you will name him Jesus. 
That name Jesus is a Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew translation of the name Joshua. You break that up, it's Yeshua. What does that mean? It means Yahweh saves. Jesus, in his very own name, says, this is who I am. Revealing myself, redeeming my people. Yahweh saves. Again, God revealing himself, giving himself the own name, Yahweh saves. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of Yahweh. Yahweh in human form, coming to ultimately redeem and save. See, in Exodus chapter three, God, he, he appeared, sending, commissioning Moses to go redeem and rescue his people. But in Christ, in the good news of Jesus, we get a better, more true, more perfect Moses because it wasn't Moses. It wasn't God sending a messenger. It was God himself, the great I am, sending himself. He says, ultimately, I have come down. In Exodus chapter three, God revealed himself in a sign of a burning, a burning thorny tree, but it was not being consumed. Well, guess what? In the good news of Jesus, the son of God was beaten, was mocked, was hung on a tree as a greater sign on a greater tree wearing a crown of thorns. And the whole wrath of God towards your sin and my sin, the sin of the world was placed on him. The form of fire, it, it represents judgment. The judgment of God poured out on him. He, he had a clinical death, had no pulse, but guess what? What is that song that we just sang? Death could not hold him. We're gonna sing that in a second. He was not consumed. Why? Because he is the great I am. He cannot be consumed because he is. In Exodus 3, Yahweh says he knew their sufferings. He heard, he, he saw their sufferings. But in Christ, Yahweh identified himself in our sufferings and our sin and our shame in a completely new way because he himself came in human flesh and it tells us that he was, he was tempted in every way, just like you and I are, but we, he remained perfect and holy. And beyond that, he identified with his sin because he went to the cross and, and, and 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He identified with our sin. He didn't know it himself by experiencing it, but he experienced the punishment of it for you and for me. He identified with our sufferings in a completely different way because Yahweh saves Lastly, in Exodus chapter three, this is probably one of my favorite parts. What does God tell Moses? Moses, Moses, I'm here. Don't come any closer. Because you are in the very presence of the great I am. You are standing on holy ground. Don't come any closer. God says the same thing 
on Mount Sinai a few chapters later. On Mount Horeb, he says, my presence is here, don't come near. But guess what? In the good news of Jesus and the one who is Yahweh saves, he doesn't any longer say stay away. He says, come near. Why? Because the holy ground between us and the very manifestation of God has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ in his righteousness. So Hebrews tells us that that we are able to draw near to the throne of grace and the throne of mercy, the very presence of God. Why? Because we have a high priest who went before us. We have the one who stepped down, who knew our suffering, identified with our sin, who went before us for you and me to draw near, not to stay away. Yahweh is the name of ultimate salvation, the name of redemption. It's the name of humility. Think about that. The great I am knew your sin, your suffering, your shame, and he says, I have come down. Yeshua, Yahweh, saves. And it's why in Philippians chapter two, Paul, he's talking about humility and he uses Christ as the perfect example because he says the one who had it all stepped down, came down, down to serve and sacrifice for you all the way to death on a cross. And he wraps up that little section with these three verses. He says, for this reason, God highly exalted him, Christ, and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, when Paul wrote that, he's actually quoting Isaiah because in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says, it is at the name of Yahweh that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he, Yahweh, is Lord. Paul is saying Yahweh has come down and it is at the name of Jesus, the name above all names, the most powerful and beautiful name, the name of Jesus, that we can come near. Why? Because he was on a greater tree, but was not consumed because he is the great I am. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, that Yahweh saves, that he is Lord. It's in the name of Yahweh and the person of Jesus Christ infinite greatness, personal intimacy come together. And if you're here today and you have never put your faith in Christ Jesus, I wanna read this verse again, John 8, 24. Jesus says, therefore I, tell, I told you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Because you and I, unholy, unworthy, God says, in my holy presence, don't come any closer. Stay away. But we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, 
Yahweh himself who came to rescue and redeem you. And if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, I wanna encourage you today to not leave this building without confessing your sins to him, confessing your helplessness and your sin and believing in the fact that Jesus Christ sprinkled that holy ground for your benefit, to draw near to your creator, the Elohim, the Yahweh, the one who is. But if you're here today and you've been following Jesus, whether it's one day or one decade, I said it in the very beginning, my prayer is that you and I come to a greater understanding of who God is in a greater place of worship as we study his names. So I wanna encourage you over the next few minutes, April's gonna keep playing. I wanna encourage you to respond where you are, just in your seat, just spend some time in prayer, pray with your family, spend some time in confession. That's what I did this morning. I hit my knees confessing the fact that God, I am forgetful that you are the one who is, yet you humbled yourself and gave yourself up for me. Forgive me. I encourage you to respond where you are. And then the band's gonna come back out after a minute or two and lead us in a song of worship. Let me pray for us. God, the one who is, we thank you because you are the eternal one, completely unchanging, absolute, is ultimate. Yet God, you have come down and we deserve to be kept at a distance, but God, in your grace, you draw us near. We thank you that by faith in Christ Jesus, we can have personal relationship with you. God, I pray that you be with every heart in this room, every heart that listens to this podcast, that you, God, bring us by your grace, seeing who you are, humble us to a place of worship, a place of surrender, all for your glory. It's in Christ's name, amen.